Hello, I'm Paul DePerna, EdChoice's Vice President of Research and Innovation. Today, I'm in the studio to introduce our listeners to a researcher I've known for nearly a decade now, I think. I'm here with John Merrifield, Professor of Economics at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and an EdChoice Fellow. John has been a professor of economics at UTSA for 32 years, retiring this year as Professor Emeritus. He is the editor of the School System Reform Journal and the past editor of the Journal of School Choice. He's published School System Reform, Why and How is a Priceless Tale, Can the Debt Growth Be Stopped, The School Choice Wars, School Choices, Parental Choice as an Education Reform Catalyst, Global Lessons, Basic Economic Tools, and 55 peer-reviewed journal articles and several chapters in edited books in his primary teaching and research fields of education economics, public finance, urban and regional economics, and environmental and natural resources economics. He also has two books in the works. So thanks a lot for joining me today, John. It is my pleasure. And beyond that, I was born a hamburger and raised a Frankfurter, and I'm very grateful to be a citizen of this country. So yeah, just talk a little bit about your background. So you came here to the U.S. when you were five years old? Uh, it was 1960. I arrived on Thanksgiving Day in Austin, Texas. And uh, actually, a few days before that, arrived in New York past the Statue of Liberty on the SS United States, of all things, and now retired ship rusting away, I think, in Baltimore. I just discovered this, this, these things just recently myself. It's unbelievable. Uh, what a great country to have uh, all this opportunity to uh, do these great things. And, you know, it's, it was a long journey getting to where I am, too, in this, in this chair here across from you, talking about school choice, because when I got to UT San Antonio in 1987, I was all about urban regional economics. And there's, I'm discovering recently, there's significant school system and school choice dimension to that, but there wasn't any when I got here, and I was an environmental economist, and by golly, I've discovered that there's some of that in school choice and school system reform recently with my association with Bart Danielson, who's the uh, head of Environmentalists for Effective Education. I work with him quite a bit. But uh, it wasn't until the mid-90s, at least, when I started to, to notice through my wife, who was a teacher, and some of the reading that I did in the school reform news put out by the Heartland Institute, that there were some serious, serious problems amiss in our education system. My wife was coming home in tears telling me these horror stories. And then I would read about some of the basic economics of how our school system was set up, and I was just stunned. And then I tuned into some of the debate about it, and it was utterly economically illiterate. And there's still plenty of work to be done on, on that even, even now, almost 20 years later. And so I thought, well, I'm having a good time being an environmental economist and an urban regional economist, but I also love low-hanging fruit. And so I've got to devote some more attention to, the, to the school system reform and school choice, and that's how I got where I am today. That's what I've been doing for most of the last 20 years. So you'd say this is really a, like a personal kind of journey where yeah. you, I mean, you saw this firsthand just through the experiences your wife had as yeah. a teacher, and, and then you saw the opportunity there as a researcher where there was just a lot of work that could be done, a lot of, new, a lot of research questions yeah. to be explored. I've never been all that excited about filling up journals with things that only 10 people on earth can read. Uh, it's hard to survive as an academic when you're not all that excited about that, but I, I somehow I managed by writing a few books here and there. Uh, yeah, I just I just saw that the school system reform issue and and which which is basically the survival of our civilization issue needed some economic literacy injected into it 
that we needed to understand what markets were and how and how uh, uh, price systems decided what we're going to produce and how we're going to produce it and where it's going to get produced. All these basic things that I talk about in the first class day or two of my principal's classes seem to be totally beyond the reach of 95% of the people participating at a high level in, in deciding what our kids would, would be taught, how they would be taught it, where they would be taught it, and which ones would learn which lessons in which places. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and it's thinking about when you made this kind of shift, I guess, in the, as you said, in the, uh, in, totally in the, in the mid-90s. Remake, in the yeah. mid-90s. I mean, yeah. is that when you met Milton Friedman? Was that? No, I didn't, I didn't meet Milton Friedman until well after that. The, the, I think the formative moment in, in pushing me kind of over the brink was I, I wrote a few uh, letters to the School Reform News, and Mike Lieberman, as he's usually called, Myron Lieberman, as he signed on his books, invited me to meet him at the Federal Reserve Bank for, in Dallas for a, a meeting. Hmm. And at that meeting in, the, in 1998, I think it was, we decided we were going to work on the school choice wars. And at some point along the way, I can't remember the exact reason, he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. I don't think it had anything to do with me. But I decided to persist in the topic mm-hmm. and make it a sole authored book. And he was impressed that, that I did. And he was impressed with the result. And, uh, you know, the, the bug bit. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. Well, you know, it's fascinating. Around that same time period, I mean, that's when he launched, he and Rose, his wife, launched our organization in 1996. Mm-hmm. And so... I think, yeah, as you were, it's, so you were shifting at least professionally from one area towards studying school choice and mm-hmm. education reforms and systems reforms. And then it, I think the Freedmans, they were, do, they were doing their own. <laughs> they were making their transition from academia to what was their next path and really mm-hmm. laying the foundation for our organization when we were known then as the Milton and Rose D. Friedman Foundation. And then just a few years ago, for some of our listeners who might not be aware, we changed our name to EdChoice. But they continue to this day to be a huge influence mm-hmm. on us yep. as an organization, particularly on the thinking of universal school choice and making mm-hmm. sure that all students are eligible for a range of school options. So you said you had your interactions with Milton Friedman around the 98, That was Myron Lieberman. But you know that what you just said reminded me that here's how I ran into Milton Friedman. It's strange. Obviously, this is a topic near and dear to his heart, especially at that time, because as a result of the association with Myron Lieberman, I wrote a little op-ed on why teachers should be for school choice. I thought, I'll send it to Milton Friedman and see what he has to say. Well, he read it. He, he read it in the, while waiting for a doctor's appointment. And, wow, I got it back. I get written on video so my facial expressions don't show. I got it back. I've, <laughs> I've not seen that much blood since the last time I got slashed myself by accident. <laughs> he marked that thing up, you know, a passive voice, active voice, this and that. And, 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 and I, I had to remind myself the only reason he did that is he cared about it. And he thought right. that there was enough there that I was worth spending that time on. Tough love. Yeah, tough exactly. Love. <laughs> right, exactly. So I thought, wow. He read it. He commented on it. I better get my act together. And uh, so anyway, so I did, and I, I sent him a copy of my book. And he probably gets dozens and dozens of copies of my book, my, my School Choice Wars. I sent him an advanced copy in 2000, and, and he read it, and he gave it an endorsement. So I'll proudly display that on the second edition that I'm working on now that he endorsed the, the first edition. And, uh, I'm, and, I, and I'm, I met him, uh, I can't remember, once or twice after that. Uh, I think it's twice. I met him at a Friedman Foundation function in Los Angeles. Barely had a few words there. 
But then I invited him to chair a session that was Western Economic Association in San Francisco, which he agreed to do. And I got to sit across the table from him for like 20 minutes before the session talking about a variety of things. And so that was awesome. And he gave me another dress down after the session that I, <laughs> about how I presented my paper and all. And so, it was, you know, again, the same thing. He wouldn't have taken the time to do it if he didn't think it was important. Oh, and the other time that I got to meet him, he invited me up to his apartment long enough to sign my copy of The School Choice Wars. So I have a copy of the book with his signature in the, uh, in the front of it. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, I only had the chance to meet him very briefly one time, but, but my boss, Robert Enlow, who had a close relationship with Milton Friedman and, and Rose Friedman and other folks, you know, my understanding is that they care deeply about these issues around schooling, especially as they were getting older and, and they would engage and any critiquing was really, yeah, just because they, like you said, they cared so much about these issues. So thinking about some of the uh, work that you were doing, I mean, can you tell our listeners and describe a little bit about School Choice Wars? And you mentioned it a minute ago. What led you to writing that book? You said you had started it with Myron Lieberman and then finished it off on your own and published it in 2001. And I mean, I just remember that was when I first got out of graduate school and I was in my first job out of school. And I just remember that making a big splash because that was an important book, especially for education reformers and those who were studying school choice and other education reforms. And I also was happening around the same time as uh, Paul Peterson and his colleagues at Harvard who were producing those, uh, the uh, randomized control trial studies of the voucher programs. So it seemed like there was some momentum around the issue. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the book? It's an amazing thing. I decided to beat up on both sides. You know, the, the catchphrase for the book was, there's a lot of information being put out there and a lot of it's wrong, misleading, and irrelevant. So uh, obviously I'm very much pro-school choice. But there was a lot of mistakes being made by our side of this issue in promoting, hyping, weak so-called experiments and how the, we were going to incrementally move from these very tiny programs progressively to larger programs. And I thought we were going to get ourselves in trouble and really poison the well for what we really needed, the Friedman-style school choice where everybody had a choice and could top off their voucher or tax credit. In those days, there weren't any education savings accounts yet, and no one had thought of that yet. And so that's why I wrote uh, The School Choice Wars, because it's one thing to battle your intellectual enemies. It's another to wonder why the people on your side were doing things that would ultimately undermine the movement. So I think we've made a lot of progress since then. And uh, for, a, for a while, I thought I was the school choice advocate's least favorite school choice advocate for having beat up on so many of them, but, uh, but I see that I've made somewhat of a recovery. <laughs> uh, so, but in the, you know, the almost 20 years, do you yeah. see that there has been, I mean, you've seen, I mean, we've certainly seen a lot of progress on the legislative front and so many more programs have been enacted since 2001, but just... Uh, We're still making some of the same mistakes, but, but a lot of people have, have figured out that uh, maybe in spite of me, or maybe because of the book, that a lot of the things that they'd been doing weren't productive and that some things that they hadn't ignored mattered a lot. For example, the add-on onto the, to the, in those days, pretty much just the voucher was the main vehicle. That that's a critical issue, and that's the difference between a centrally planned school system and one that can function as all thriving industries function based on the price system, where freedom by consumers and freedom by producers would produce a market price that was the far better way to regulate things than through the political process. 
Would you say that pricing signals and the pricing mechanism, I mean, in our conversations as we've had over, you know, the years, and would you say that's one of your big, you know, main focus in terms of where we still have room to grow and, oh to, do, and to do things yeah. better? It's just such a basic point, but it's such an esoteric point, and people are so attached to the notion that they have to prescribe how things are done. A couple of years ago, there was this line about how people don't trust producers and consumers to regulate things independently. You know, and there's a, there's, so there's a lot of that. So, yeah, it's a very difficult sell, and I think I'm probably still one of just a handful of people that are openly advocating that whatever we do has to move forward in some way by exploiting and harnessing the price system as a way to orchestrate what's taught, how it's taught, for whom and who, who gets taught. If we don't do that, we're going to be stuck in the central plan optimization mode, as I call it. And that's part of what we need to do is to educate all of the technically brilliant people that are working hard to improve schools for kids, but are doing it in a way that's ultimately not very likely to be very productive. If they're not harnessing price signals in some way to signal either the consumers of schooling or the producers of it through a pricing mechanism, they're involved uh, in central plan optimization, which we know from all the central plans that have been tried throughout history for everything, that ultimately they collapse because there's an incentive problem and an information problem that nobody's ever figured out how to, to get around. Central plans bring out the worst and even the best people, unfortunately, eventually, if not immediately. And if we don't have the price mechanism resolving imbalance between supply and demand and motivating market entry and exit, then we can only rely on regulation and tyranny that ultimately comes with that kind of power. You know, maybe pretend, just for an example, pretend like I'm a school principal or, or a teacher. Mm-hmm. How would you describe, how does the pricing signal work? How would an effective pricing system, pricing mechanism you know, work for, for school yeah, choice? Yeah, sure. Like how, I'm not sure this is something I would convey to a school principal per se, but, but here, here's a good example. Let's suppose a family's watching TV one night and mom, dad, couple kids, and the sports broadcast comes on the news. And one of the kids just totally tunes out, leaves the room. And the other kid's just going nuts. He's so into all of the statistics and everything. And dad is an entrepreneur, and he scratches his chin, and he says, you know what? I bet there's a lot of kids out there like my son, and probably a lot like my daughter that just left the room. If I started a school that taught math, reading, writing, and whatever through sports stories, some kids would be so jazzed about that They'd break down the door to get in my school, and I bet, scratching my fingers here in the, you know, the, the dollar sign mode, I bet I could charge a pretty high tuition for that. See, now we've got the capitalist brain functioning here. And so, sure enough, Dad goes out and starts the school, and we can set aside for the moment whether, they're, you know, whether it's a charter school or a private school having to charge the whole fare or not. Admittedly, it's going to be difficult for Dad to get people to enroll in the school if there's a free alternative to it. But okay, let's say that it's so popular that kids are just pouring into that school and dad is making money just like crazy because it's such a popular idea. And here's the next thing. A school with a new curriculum. A curriculum that's based totally around sports. And it's based around sports stories. Yeah, Yeah. so so we're not talking PE or or jocks doing stuff. I mean, that could be part of it. We're talking about kids excited about sports stories as a way to learn things, to be engaged in the three R's, if you will, to be engaged in reading and writing and all of that. And so dad's making money like crazy doing this because it's popular with not a very large number of kids, but more than enough to fill up a school in his neighborhood at a pretty pricey tuition. 
Guess what happens next in the free enterprise system? Somebody else observes dad making big bucks selling that curriculum to kids, and he starts up a competing school to do the same thing, and that forces the tuition price down eventually to as cheap as anybody can produce that kind of schooling. See, that's how the market system resolves so those so issues. There, so there's a check there. Exactly. Built into the system. Yeah, the, so that the first person is rewarded. not going to be run, run, runaway capitalism or, or however you want to phrase it. Like people who might be worried about, you know, kids being left behind or um, and being priced out of. Well, you know, it's possible that, that teaching stuff through sports stories is expensive. might be hard to get teachers to teach that. Maybe they roll their eyes and they go, oh, goodness. Teach, so i got to pay them more to do that. So it's possible that that might cost a lot, and it maybe isn't available to some low-income kids that are sports nuts that would learn best by sports stories. What happens? The philanthropists figure that out, and they say, I'm going to make it possible so these low-income kids can go to this, this school that would really engage them in learning, whereas they're really bored now in this one-size-fits-all public school. So either way that you look at it, just from the straight capitalism of the motivation to do this or the sort of perceived inequity of, hey, this could be expensive and, you know, why can't my kid have this and it's not fair? Well, we have the philanthropists that are now introducing some of the modern notions of school choice now that they're spending all their money supporting charter schools rather than supporting children directly. If they no longer, if the, if the market could could decide the amount of things and the price of things, then the donors wouldn't have to support the schools directly. They would be able to spend all their money supporting low-income children. And I've done some of the math that shows that there's enough money right now being spent supporting charter schools, staying in business to, to fund each child, a low-income child that's likely to want to choose for about $1,000. So each child from a philanthropist, on average, could probably get about $1,000 support payment to help them top off whatever government funding that they had to either go to a charter school if they allowed topping off. That's another subject of topping off at charter schools or at a private school that, say, charged 8000 to teach this curriculum to them, whereas the amount of government money supporting, say, a voucher education savings account is only $7,000. Got to find $1,000 someplace. Now, if their parents have money, no problem. But if their parents don't have money, that's where the donors come in, and, and, and they're no longer committed then under those circumstances to underwriting the schools directly. Now they can put all that. And uh, just a guess, one of the many research issues that we could do a survey on would be how much additional money would donors come up with to do this if they were supporting kids directly, low-income kids directly, as opposed to supporting chartered public schools with their money that it may only, that a large fraction of the children that go to those schools, their parents could support them, that they're not low-income kids. Well, and so we do see, I mean, we have seen since the late 90s, and it was first starting in Arizona, tax credit scholarship programs. Mm-hmm. So you have these scholarship granting organizations right. where they receive donations either from individuals or corporations, and then those donors then can offset their tax liabilities at some percentage that, mm-hmm. that's stipulated by whichever state. And we have one here in Indiana. And Arizona has one as well, where they're actually a higher percentage can be offsetting for tax purposes. I think 17, 18 states have tax credit scholarship programs now. So we already see, you know, there is this philanthropic and donor-driven assistance, particularly for those low-income disadvantaged mm-hmm. students. 
And even in the case of Arizona, where in some cases scholarships can be combined or added on to 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 try to meet those tuition needs and so forth. But uh, so that no, that was really a helpful example. I mean, is there anything else you wanted? Well, the tax credit scholarships usually that's that, that money goes either to parents that opt their kids out of the public school that they're assigned to, or to businesses, okay, that want to donate to a voucher granting fund. So that's not philanthropy per se. People are maybe partially philanthropically driven. So the philanthropy that I'm envisioning stepping up, not with additional money, although that might be forthcoming, I believe it would be, would be like the Walton Family Fund and others, that, for example, that fund charter schools directly, that that money would then become available directly to fund children, which would top off the voucher that would possibly be forthcoming from a tax credit scholarship firm. So, for example, suppose they could get, say, $5,000 from the tax credit scholarship, SGO, the scholarship granting organization. But the school that they want to attend, say, charges 6000 Okay, And so, wow, they're a poor family. Well, 5000 is not enough. They can't find 1000 Bingo. They've got a donor that provides funds on an application basis to top off their voucher to attend a school that charges more than the voucher amount. Okay. Yeah, now that could be a way to address some of that gaps between the tuition amount and the voucher. Yeah, I mean, we need the, the philanthropists to step up and do that. We need to make it possible by relieving them of the burden of having to keep charter schools and other schools afloat, because many states don't fund charter schools at a high enough level to pay for many of the pedagogies that, that people want available in those states. So the, the philanthropists then are, since the kids at school is free, getting into it is not a cost issue. It's a I'm stuck on a waiting list issue. So the donors, if they want to have an impact, have to fund the schools directly, which, as you know, Milton Friedman says you should not do. You should subsidize individuals, right. the consumers of something, never the producers of it if you can help it at all. But that's the only way to make a difference as a, as a philanthropist now with schooling being mandated to be free. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's really like at the foundation of school choice is really that notion, that idea of separating the administration of schools from the financing of schools. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you know, one of the central tenets behind his school choice proposal was that those have to be disconnected for all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. economic, political, and otherwise. And so that's really helpful to talk about your thoughts on pricing and this topping off. I mean, is there, we've seen that some programs that have been enacted in the last five to 10 years have become more generous and seem to be at least, I mean, do you see the potential that the topping off may not be as crucial an issue if programs and you know, hypothetically do become, at least voucher and ESA programs tend to be more generous on average for what the funds allowed for the students, who would most benefit from, I mean, I think you said that the population of students that would most benefit from this capability to add on funds would be the disadvantaged or low income. Well, everybody would benefit, but they would benefit the most because they're the most desperate in need of some differentiated instruction, some specialized schooling, not the one size fits all, fits them the worst. So if we can get them into a system where there is a diverse array of ways to teach things, diverse pedagogies, or diverse themes for schools to engage them in the content so they actually want to learn. Yeah, we need to have the top offs. Now, certainly the higher the base funding amount that comes per pupil via public funding, the higher that is, 
the more frequently that's, that competition will push the price down to zero, namely the government funding is enough. Now, if the government funding rises to a high enough level, then you start to get the reverse problem of overspending and surpluses and schooling as frills that are low value, but the purveyors need to use them to compete for children at a very high price. So ideally, what we would have is a support level, government funding support level, where most schools are nearly free. I think there's a little bit of skin in the game I think is useful. But we, we want a government funding level where most schools are nearly free once the competition, the market entry, and all of that is taking its toll. But we must always leave the possibility of topping off there because that's the way to handle ups and downs in the market that can happen faster than legislatures can change funding formulas. You know, so for example, some let's say somebody has a, has a, a pedagogy that they think you know, would be help a lot of kids, and they think that it would cost say ten thousand dollars per child. And right now, the per pupil funding level from the government is say ten thousand five hundred dollars. Mm, pretty dicey there. You know, it could you know they, if their estimates a little off. Suddenly now they're losing money and they have to become donor dependent or go out of business. But if it's possible to add on, then it's okay. Because mm-hmm. then suppose costs go up. Oh, okay, well, so we have, we'll charge $100 to go to the school instead of free. So yeah. y- you need to have some margin of error there so that entrepreneurs feel safe in entering a market within innovation. And plus, initially, they put up probably a lot of money into product development. They probably initially need to be able to justify their investment to charge a lot to secure a return on their investment before the copycat entrepreneurs descend on the situation, like that sports school scenario that I described. Dad, the first inventor, he probably needs to get rich off of that. I mean, at least charge a lot off of that just to cover his developmental costs and to induce others to think about the same thing and to follow him. But then after a period, okay, now we're going to let the wolves come in there and, and, and say, okay, I love your idea. I can do that too. And by the way, we're going to charge less than you and put you out of business unless you can match us. And sometimes the copycat entrepreneurs are more efficient at delivering the product than the originator of it. And so they may put him out of business. Well, and that's because they probably learn from the mistakes or yeah, well, the tri- trials and tribula- sure. tribulations. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes looking through, from through afar. The, so like those early, ado- early adopters yeah. or the leaders tend to, yeah, they can be, so, yeah. So we need that top off possibility for all kinds of different margins. It's never totally irrelevant. I've heard people in San Antonio, where I'm from, talk about this issue and say, eh, it seems unseemly to let the rich, which they assume it's just going to be the rich. They don't then thought through the philanthropy part of the topping off. They think, okay, topping off, only rich people can do that. It's unfair to give them an advantage that they don't, that they can have better schooling than others. And so they say, let's just jack up the government funding level enough so that we can ban the top offs. No. That's that's just that's not. I mean, you know, we should have equitable funding, children, no matter where they go, non-discrimination, same amount of money should follow them everywhere. But there should always be the room to top off because no weighted student formula or any other formula can capture the full diversity in what makes a child learn better, and it might cost a little bit more than what somebody's guess is. Just to play devil's advocate a little bit, sure. I was, I was going to say, so could an alternative to like the top off possibility? be like indexing or having a, like an automatic escalator, you know, annual, almost it, like, it, a absolutely co- the, like a cost of living index or the, the, something the, the, like that where most schools it's fluid from year to year. It's out, it's out of polit- political hands for the most part and it's something that's automatic and adjusts to market 
circumstances. Are. That's a possibility. So you should still definitely allow the, the topping off as, as the, you know, against the uncertainties and such. But sure, you could do that. The criteria is that most of the schools should be nearly free. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so that should guide either automatically or, or informally uh, the, the budgeting of it. But some, some pedagogies are just going to cost more than what we can do for everybody. And we shouldn't put those off limits uh, just because we think that uh, top-offs are unseemly. It's not such a bad thing when the wealthy get to be the first to have something and they're the first to, uh, to put their kids at risk on a, on a new pedagogy that well, may be, yeah, may be a little risky. Well, that's actually, I mean, I think that's a really important point is that there's a risk. Yeah. I mean, there, there, or there can be, yeah. you know, for those people who are, you know, trying new innovative things. And so that, that is the trade-off. And, but there can be a huge payoff too. the benefits, mm-hmm. yeah, not, not just a certain, you know, income bracket, but I mean, we think, I mean, technologies and even, you know, even think about healthcare and medicine that, you know, is tar- targeted adopters. to a very, uh, to a very specific population and, Adopters, either through circumstance or by means, but then eventually it opens up and it spreads, we need and it becomes more, much start. more much more yeah. accessible to a exactly. lot of, to a lot of people. And I mean, which I think, which I know is you know our organization, you know, on that principle of universality, we want options to be available to all students and by all means. And I know that's where you come from too. And mm-hmm. I think it's a really interesting topic that. That is something that you know that a lot of folks will be thinking about, especially thinking about the next generations of school choice programs and evolving programs at the state level. What would you say has made you either optimistic about the future around school reform and systemic reform, and anything that maybe makes you wary? Well, or, some, some of this or gives does, you some pause. Yeah, well, some of this does take. It could a be recent, of, or in, or yeah, maybe further yeah. back. Well, you know, I'm always optimistic just because of the great country we live in. So, I mean, that, that's the main, main thing that drives me. And at some level, these concepts are simple enough, and they derive from a fundamental principle, namely non-discrimination. Our school system exists. Public education is not our public school system. Public education is a concept that says we value all children and that all of them need and schooling that works for them. And so I think that may prevail over the uh, struggle to message this, which I'm afraid grows because our literacy level, especially for economics, seems to be rising. So, yeah, we're, we're in danger here, but, but the concepts are still simple enough that, I, that hopefully we can win in one state at least and demonstrate this at a, at a high enough level that, it, that it'll do, as Milton Friedman said, that the wildfire will be ignited and once we demonstrate it somewhere. I'm afraid when we, what, what demonstrating is going to turn out to me, well, I'm not afraid, but I'm hopeful in a sense that we can demonstrate it not by its educational prowess, because that's going to take a while. We can transform a school system. It won't show that it's, that it's a lot better and, and, you know, by what standard people will dispute the statistics and all that. That takes a long time. But what will happen right away when we convey universal school choice to every person in a given place is that people will flock into there, and there will be an economic development explosion. That will be the first sign that school choice works at something important, namely to rescue the poor places in our inner cities by conveying at least school choice to those populations, and then eventually, in time, 10 or 15 years, 
after the economic development be- benefits have been seen, we'll see the schooling benefits too. You mentioned Bart Danielson earlier during our podcast, and he's looked at those kind of questions. Yeah, we both have. Um, them, and and right. I know that's something that you, yeah, the two of yeah. you are, have ongoing work together. And could you maybe describe if there's anything that the two of you have been working on, especially as school choice plays into or could factor into a economic development? Well, we've mapped out Tennessee and Texas to show where all the places are under different sets of constraints and assumptions that should be given school choice as an economic development tool. In other words, we've shown for all the major cities and some rural areas uh, where the poverty is. And see, this is a very unique and powerful anti-poverty tool because it makes people actually live in the place that you want the economic development to be. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. And from San Antonio, we attracted a Toyota plant some years ago with huge fanfare. And I'm sure it's benefited the city. And I'm sure it's benefited the state, although maybe not enough to pay for all the goodies we gave away. But it didn't benefit the place where the plant is. It's still a desperately poor place. And I suspect the reason is the employees and and probably the executives won't tolerate the school systems of South San Antonio. Mm. Uh, Not that the North San Antonio is much better, but it is better. And so they probably commute across San Antonio every day, polluting the air and creating traffic jams as they go to reach their their job sites in South San Antonio at the Toyota plant. I'm going to I'm going to collect the zip codes one of these days of all the workers that work there and and, and demonstrate that. But that's but that's a time-worn story. Economic development is attracted to a certain place in terms of new businesses. But then the people with any money just don't bother to live there. Mm-hmm. So there isn't much economic development to the small-scale places, the neighborhoods that desperately need it. It goes to the city at large and to the, to the places in the city that already have, that are already doing pretty well. So we were segregating our cities by making choice mostly still based on where you choose to live. And then all you do is choose which comprehensively uniform gargantuan school is best, whereas a choice-based system based on tuition rather than housing cost would create a dynamic menu of diverse schooling options as diverse as the school children population. That's what we desperately need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bart, he did a report for us a couple of years ago looking at mm-hmm. a, char- right. a charter school in Orange County yeah. or the Orange County School for the Arts and, yeah, lo- and looking at yeah. and, and doing, you know, um, an Amazing. analysis over time and just how the economic development around that, that community changed over time mm-hmm. pretty dramatically. Yeah. And that really showed me how there is this economic development argument for school choice. And as you mentioned a minute ago, that there is also an environmental case for mm-hmm. school choice that's connected to the economic development side. Mm-hmm. That was just fascinating work that he's done. I'm glad, to, yeah, I'm really glad to hear that the two of you will be looking at those kind of questions. It'll even help with global warming. Yeah. It's just, no, I mean, really, it's something to harness. Yeah. A lot of people are concerned at the city level with their with their global warming policies and, and or carbon, here, here, the local carbon, carbon footprint. Here's footprint. a way to help yep. prove your school system. Yep. Okay. Make it possible for people to have good schooling where they are, if not through their public schools, through, through school choice. And there'll be a lot of less traffic jams generating emissions and a lot less driving around than there is now. And one of your ideas along these lines is that a voucher or an ESA should be targeted to the place or the geography. If necessary, geography. If we have to target it. Yeah. If, if, it is, if it has to be targeted to yep. the place rather than by other types of yep. student demographic. Yeah, the only uh, acceptable, I think, type of targeting, by acceptable I mean as a catalyst for school system reform, is targeting of 
poor places, which means everybody in the poor place gets the school choice option. And the reason everybody has to get it is the main initial reason for it is to keep the rich people from the relatively richer people, middle and upper income people from leaving those places and to attract middle and upper income people to those places. And meanwhile, everybody's got school choice. So the people that can't leave those places get a ride on the improved uh, schooling options that result from the actions of the, uh, and, and in some case, inactions of the middle and upper income people by staying there when they were about to move. I know we're going to probably have to wrap up in the next five minutes, but I wanted to make sure we talked about your new book that's coming out this fall. Yeah. And uh, so can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the title of the book is? Yeah. And, and Sure. I'd love to. Thanks for asking. Yeah, the title of the book is School System Reform, Why and How is a Priceless Tale, Dash Between Price and Less. Okay, because the reason we're in the mess we're in, I mean, a central reason for it that leads to a lot of the more visible reasons is that there are no prices on the various elements of our school systems, which is 90% the public school system and 10% private and 9% of the 10% is church run. So it's not based on investment and profit seeking like most of the economy is. So we have a system, frankly, in this country, as well as most of the modern world and probably the whole world, but there's no data for me to know for sure, that school systems throughout the world are mostly priceless. Therefore, when there aren't prices to orchestrate production and consumption, the only other alternatives are either chaos or central planning. And central planning, as you know, has a lot of chaos in it. So we see that by not allowing tuition to be charged, by not paying teachers according to supply and demand, by not allowing movement from easily movement from public to private within our current system, we see all kinds of terrible effects that cascade into other terrible effects that I wish we had enough time yeah. to get into. But let, let, me get, let me get into one aspect of it, namely the ec- equity aspect. Yeah. That it is not inequitable to allow ultimately improvement in, in the prospects of the poor to allow schools to charge what the market will bear. I know that some people are gasping out there to, to hear that, but there is the market entry mechanism that will drive the price down to what it actually costs to do whatever it is. And then we can rely on the philanthropy to fund the top offs where necessary, rarely in most cases based on how much funding we already are committing to schools uh, to, to support the low-income children. So just thinking about our listeners, I mean, is there another industry or another sector where you can make a parallel kind of comparison where it was priceless, but then pricing signals or pricing mechanism became more transparent and therefore there was more information coming to consumers? You know, right off the top of my head, I can't think of a system we've rescued from pricelessness Lately, I, what I can tell you is that we're in the same mess in healthcare. A book came out recently by John Goodman, whose title is Priceless, okay, which is about healthcare and how there are prices on things in healthcare, but they're hard to monitor. Sometimes you're obligated to paying before you see what the price was. And so we can, we can derive some information from healthcare because there's been some reforms. In, but the solution, I think, is the same, frankly, to healthcare as well as K through 12, because equity and sort of this notion of it's a right to schooling and a right to health care is sort of the same between the two of them. We need a two-sector solution. One is, hey, you're guaranteed a spot, no charge. But if you want to opt out, 
to whatever the free market can provide, you know, whatever central planning can deliver, that's what we need to move to both in healthcare and in education is to have a non-discrimination between the people that want to be in one part of the system versus the people that want to be in the other part of the system. And I think both, will, frankly, thrive. Well, you know, one of the things that we saw in Edgewood when I studied that, where I saw the, you know, what Bart Danielson documented for Orange County, California, was the Edgewood school system in, in San Antonio. Philanthropists made it possible to offer vouchers to everybody there for a period of 10 years. Right. And when he did that, suddenly an Edgewood address became very, very valuable. They built new housing in the Edgewood area for the first time in decades. It's a very poor part of San Antonio area. And you did a ton of Edgewood research. Yeah, I mean, I was the, I was the, the person that did that research. The trailer parks filled up right away. They built new apartments. They built new homes. It was thriving. And the punchline here is the public school systems got better. And families... From the competition. Well, I'm not... not competing for students. You know, I'm glad you asked that question because I don't think there was any competition going on there. I went through 10 years of school board minutes. Not a mention of the voucher program by the school board. Not one. Mm. One questioner at one of the meetings brought it up and was quickly dismissed. What happened... I believe, more research needs to be done, was that the Edgewood schools improved because they had a less heterogeneous student population to have to deal with. The outliers that were not successful in the Edgewood schools left. And as a result of that, it became easier to teach those that were behind it. It was more homogenous, fewer extremes, fewer bored acting out children, fewer overwhelmed children, fewer bored children in the classrooms because they're the ones that took the vouchers and left. So we can count on public school improvement through school choice, even if there isn't any competitive response, which I think is frankly kind of heroic to expect one. I think people have done research that, that they claim has shown a competitive response. Usually like small, moderate, yeah, the, the, positive the, effects. I mean, it's Right, but it, I think they're mostly sorting and public publicity effects. We have yet to resolve that issue. Competitive effects would be fine, but but the point here is that we will get public school system improvement from school choice without competitive effects. By removing the children who are not thriving there, we will make the teachers' lives much easier than they are now with all the differentiated instruction that's expected from them that they are unwilling or unable to deliver. But you're not saying that students are going to segregate themselves or because what we've seen, at least in the research, is that if anything, school choice, private school choice programs, they've had an integrating force. Oh, no, I'm not suggesting anything at all about right, right. segregation or integration. Right. I'm saying that somebody that's in a math classroom, for example, they're basically going to struggling, school, saying, school I need to get out of here. You meet their needs. And when that right. person's out of there, they're no longer acting out or doing whatever they right. did when they were in that room. And so the teacher is more successful with everybody that's, that stays behind. It doesn't have anything to do with color or income. Sure, right. It's just that, you see, when you have a public school system classroom, it's a random sample of everybody that's the same age in that neighborhood, in that attendance area, which is an almost impossible teaching mission to, to teach a room full of everything from A to Z in terms of what engages them, ways in which they learn, all of that lumped together in the same room because they just happen to be the same age. It's a completely insane way to teach children. They need to be ability grouped by subject. Okay? Not just ability group. That's tracking. That's a no-no. Ability group by subject. Children are diverse. They're smart in some things. I know I sure am hopefully smart in something. I know I'm pretty dumb in some things, too. I, let, you know, I turn that over to the, like the car mechanic and the computer nerd and all of that. 
they handle that because I'm totally helpless there. But there's some other areas where, and I think most people are the same way. So, we, but we don't do that in our public school system classrooms. We just throw them all in there and say, teacher, do differentiated instruction, be successful. And, and some teachers are, are unbelievable. They're able to do that. The vast majority, from, from what I've read, say, oh, I can't do that, and they don't, they don't try. But I think there is some ability, my understanding, and I'm not that familiar, with it, although my, my former boss a long time ago, mm-hmm. you, Tom Loveless, you wrote the School Choice Wars. He wrote the Tracking Wars <laughs> book. Yeah. And um, I just remember conversations with him and learning about the differences between you know tracking and ability grouping. My understanding is that, yeah, in the elementary grades, it's maybe more of that kind of randomness in terms of where s- students are assigned for classroom mm-hmm. learning and what teachers they get. But then as they get to, like, middle school, junior high, high school, that there is more of that ability grouping that's going on, if not tracking. Yeah, there used to be a lot more of it, but it was the wrong kind of ability grouping. It was more like ability grouping by not by subject. It was just sort of a, a homogenous designation of high-performing, low-performing, never mind that they're high-performing only in some things and not other things. So that's not that's, – see, one of the main problems with that and the reason that it went away is it's stigmatizing. Oh, you're, you're in the dumb kids. You know, you're with the smart kids. Uh, most kids are some of each. And, and if, you know, if every once in a while they're in the high flyers math room, okay, you know, but maybe later in the day they're in the low flyers, you know, classroom with reading. And then, then we don't have the, these stigma effects that if we, if we track people just uh, one-dimensionally. And that's another issue. There's way too much one-dimensional thinking when it comes to schools. If we, you know, now that we have all the schools, public schools, the public schools, they all try to do basically the same thing. And so it's easy to say, you know, this is a high-quality school, this is a low-quality school. What if we had a system, the one we need, uh, a diverse menu of schooling options as diverse as our school children, how would we know whether a school was high-quality? You would have to say, for whom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the conversation we need. Yeah. We need to not be able to designate schools as politicians and researchers. Ah, but as parents, we need to be able to designate schools. This is a high-quality school for my child. They right. can make that judgment. This school that a lot of my friends like, other parents, oh, I would never send my kid to that school. Oh, that's another thing that came out of the Edgewood program. The enrollment in the Edgewood system rose at the same time that the enrollment in the voucher program went up. <laughs> you know, people are thinking the kids, the voucher, they were coming at, at the first couple of years, yeah. But then when people started flocking into the, into the system, they weren't just anti-public school kids, uh, families. What they noticed is Susie does just fine in her assigned school. She's a mainstream kid. Oh, but Joey doesn't do well. We need to move to Edgewood. Susie will go to the public school. Joey will take a voucher. So the enrollment in both schools went up. Yeah. It was an amazing thing to see. It's like, you know, we thought one would go down, you know, is the other one just matching going up? No, the one went down a little bit, and then then both, you know, the the other one. The, the, the vouchers went up for five years until they started to run out of money and then right. they stopped taking new kids. And then so it started. And that's exactly when the public schools started to their taper uh, off a little ter- bit. Tapering off. Uh, yeah. Went down again, started going down again in terms of performance. In terms of performance. I'm going to have to sign off here in a couple minutes. One thing I wanted to ask since you just retired this year, you have a long history, impressive publication and teaching record at UTSA. And so. Assuming that some of our listeners may be in graduate school, thinking about graduate school, or early on in their career in academia, do you have any advice for folks who are just at the beginning of their career and thinking about, like, 
research opportunities that may be out there, or just or things to be, you know consider professionally in higher education. Well, my first advice to all my students is always first figure out what you're passionate about, and that's what you ought to do. That's the most important thing. You don't want to wake up every morning to real work. You know, any job has real work in it every once in a while. Right, but, of course. But, but uh, yeah, you want to wake up to – and then you're, then you're going to be productive, and the, the money will take care of itself. The other advice I'd give is follow the low-hanging fruit. Uh, figure out where the basic needs are not being met in, in this area. Intellectually, it was, hey, we need an economist that's actually a price theorist. You know, that's, that's the role that I'm trying to take. There's, there are other economists in this realm, but I think the vast majority – I'm trying to think of one that's not, is basically participating as, a, as an econometrician. Mm. Another statistician who, who uh, engages in school system reform or school choice that ha- just happens to have a PhD in economics. So back, but back to your question about the, about the graduate students, find what you're passionate about, follow the low-hanging fruit, and if the bug happens to bite you for school system reform, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. And another kind of, for, for those interested in economics, but maybe not school system reform or this area, uh, if you're good at communicating in, in either with drawings or with just with English, we need you. Yeah. Uh, because there's a lot of good to be done in this area, this specific area, or just any area. Just commuting basic economic fundamentals to the general public. Read about Henry Hazlitt in one sim- simple lesson. There, there was a man, now deceased, that was great at translating important things in, into Compl- newspaper and very, level. Very, very complicated yes. concepts yeah. and, and, and ideas. And we need more people that, 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 that can do that, whether it be for a school system reform or any area. Okay. No, that's great. No, I, I think that's a nice positive note for us to wind up this podcast. And so any other last words that well, maybe that we didn't have the a chance to The fun never ends unless you let it. Okay. And, and, and that's, you know, that's something to live by, especially in this area, because it'd be very easy to get depressed. When you see a lot of things going on in the, in, the, in the kinds of ways that some people are, frankly, willing to make a living in this area, acting against the best interests of children, unfortunately. I, I think some of them know that. Some of them, I think, maybe actually think that a pro-monopoly system is good for kids. Uh, we need to change their minds. We need to work with them. That needs to be our number one priority is take the good people and, uh, and let them know that, that they're pointing in the wrong direction at the moment. All right. Well, John, thank you for this time to have a conversation over our podcast. And to our listeners, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on platforms like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others for more of our coverage for new school choice research, education reform, policy chats, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon with more EdChoice Chats.